Well, here we are. It's great to see you guys. Oh, what a full room. It looks so wonderful. And then online, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, whether you've joined us online uh, live through Facebook or you are watching this video throughout the week, we're so thankful that you're with us too. Uh, so this morning, we're starting a series in the Gospel of Mark uh, that I am quite certain is going to take us into 2022 to complete. Uh, and as a proof of that, if, if there's any indication of that, of how careful and thorough I plan on being uh, this morning, we're only going to look at the first verse. So that should tell you something. But I'm excited. I'm excited to begin this with you. And so let's, let's dig into that first verse. Now, there'll be, there'll be a lot of other information, but that's as far as we're going to make it in, in Mark's text this morning. I want to give you a lot of background information so you can feel uh, with a, a greater degree of certainty and assurance the things that we will be studying throughout the next year. So our author, Mark, and, and we'll get into Mark here in just a moment. Mark is a person. But our author, our, our author, Mark, writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, first let me comment, I guess, on the tone in which Mark writes. If you've studied literature before, you, you're a reader, you understand that authors write with a specific tone. And what's Mark's tone here? From the very first verse and until the end of his gospel, I believe that we will see Mark write with a sense of expected urgency. There's an urgency to the way Mark writes. Even more so, let me say this, and, and I'll dig into this more with you in the next few minutes, but even more so than the other gospel authors. Mark writes with a sense of urgency. He uses one specific Greek word. It's on the screen for you there, eutheos. He uses it throughout the gospel. And, and we'll see this. You'll see it in English, of course, as we study through this gospel together. But it's translated into immediately or at once. And we're going to find that Mark is going to say that often. Immediately, Jesus rose up and. Or at once, Jesus began to do this. There's a tone of urgency in Mark's gospel. Why? Why is he so urgent to get this message out. Well, we'll get to the reasons that Mark wrote in just a few minutes. But first of all, let's step back and let's talk about a couple of other, uh, I guess, preliminary questions or background questions that I think are really important if we're going to put our trust in what we study, because we're not just reading a story over this next year, but we are reading something that has been carefully written down so that we would form our faith and practice by it, church. And so if we're going to trust in it, we should probably have some certainty of, of what we're reading and what we're studying. So let's talk about a, a couple of questions first of all. When did Mark write? When did he write? I'm just going to do this very quickly, but I think it's important for you to know this. It's important to know that Mark wrote his gospel first. He wrote first. It's the first of the four Gospels. Bible scholars are pretty well agreed on with that. You have four, if you're new to faith, if you're new to Christianity, and I know this is review for most of the room, but you have four Gospels in your New Testament, of course. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
But Mark was the first one of the four to compile these stories and these sayings of Jesus together into one document. He was the first of the four guys to do that. Now, they existed for decades prior to that. They were by oral tradition. They were told, or they were even written down. In, in biblical studies, we call them, it's a big word, but we call them pericopes. And a pericope is an individual story of Jesus, whether something that Jesus did or something that Jesus taught. And these were floating around the church for decades before anybody wrote them down. This is, this is, this is agreed upon by Bible scholars. But it's essential for us as Christ followers to be very familiar with all four Gospels. It's essential. Now, I know I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to say things like that. But, but think about it. If you have put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you would say, I am following Christ, that he is my Savior, he is my Lord, then don't you think it's important to know what he did and said? And so we need to know the four Gospels in the New Testament. Now, I am leading you this year through a study of Mark's Gospel. And because of that, we will not be looking at everything Jesus said and did. There are stories, for instance, that Matthew or Luke or John include that Mark doesn't include. There's teaching that Matthew and Luke and John include that Mark doesn't include. So this is not going to be a sermon series on the life of Christ. And so I say that to say it's very important for you to continue on your own to study the other three Gospels. I will, though, however, reference those other three Gospels because we'll be in a story that Mark is telling and Matthew will give a detail that Mark doesn't give. And I'll be like, hey, look at this verse in the Gospel of Matthew or look at this verse in the Gospel of Luke because Luke records something that Mark left out or Matthew records something that Mark left out. And so we're going to glean from all of the Gospels, but our study is going to be through the Gospel of Mark. Mark wrote first, and he, the year that Bible scholars think he wrote was probably around 65 AD. And we'll get into why uh, they believe that here in just a minute. But this is about 35 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, Bible scholars think Jesus was probably uh, crucified in, say, 28 to 30 A.D., somewhere in that span of time. And so this is approximately 35 years after that. Now, let's talk about who Mark was. So that's when he wrote. He wrote around 65 A.D., and he was the first one to compile all of these Jesus stories into his gospel. But who was Mark? It's important that we know about this author because, again, we're going to spend so much time with him this year and we want to know that he's giving us reliable information. Well, we know a few things about Mark, or John Mark, as he's called in the New Testament, from the pages of Scripture, but we also know a lot about him from early church history. And I'll be sharing some of that with you this morning as well. In the New Testament, we learn that Mark was a partner in ministry of both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. He worked with both of these big dogs of the faith in the early years of the church. I believe the first time that we are introduced to him on the pages of Scripture is in Acts chapter 12. 
And I'm just going to take you through a few passages here just so we can get to know who Mark is a little bit. Acts 12.25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the Mark that we believe wrote the gospel. And again, this is something that the vast majority of Bible scholars throughout church history have agreed on, and you'll see why as we unpack this a little bit. And maybe you remember that a few chapters later in Acts, there's this argument that breaks out between Paul and Barnabas. Do you remember this chapter? In Acts chapter 15, I want to look at this text and show you this. But in Acts 15, we see an argument that breaks out between the Apostle Paul and Paul's mentor, Barnabas. And this is what the text says. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them, who? John called Mark, the author of our gospel. But Paul thought best not to take with them, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, he's talking about Mark here, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Paul and Barnabas, good friends. Barnabas discipled Paul when he came to faith after the road to Damascus experience in Acts chapter 9. They were partners in ministry, but they argued over this. Who were they arguing over? Mark. What happens? Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what we gather from Acts chapter 15 is that something happened. It seems like Mark bailed, if we put it in today's terms, on Paul in ministry. He withdrew, as the text says, but he really lets Paul down. And Paul is not so quick to forgive here. Or maybe to forgive, I I should have charity with Paul here. Maybe he's willing to forgive, but he's not willing to give Mark another chance anyways at this point, at this point. Thankfully, this is not the ending of the story. Praise God, church, for grace in our lives. Just a little mini sermon within a sermon here. Praise God that he gives us the grace often to mend broken relationships in our lives. Amen? And and we've been the recipient of this, and, and hopefully we've been the one to give grace at times because it seems that Paul's confidence in Mark was later restored. Let me just show you. He makes reference to Mark. This is the Apostle Paul. And he says about him, he's a fellow worker. He's a partner in ministry in a couple of his letters, Colossians 4.10 and Philemon verse 24, are where you can look for those ideas. But here, later, much after what's happening here in Acts chapter 15, Paul is saying about this same young man, John Mark, he's my fellow worker. He's my partner in ministry. And then what we believe in what we believe to be Paul's very last letter before his execution, he writes this about Mark. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark 
and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. He's instructing Timothy to get Mark and to bring him to see Paul because he's useful to him. This relationship had been restored. Here's my encouragement to us, myself included, this morning. Let's be like Barnabas. Let's be like Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement. If you're going to have a nickname, what a great nickname to have. Son of encouragement. Now, I, you know, in my younger years, I always thought having the nickname that Jesus gave James and John, sons of thunder, would have been the one to have. But as I get older, I realized that though Christ was saying something about their zeal, it also might have been kind of a joke. (laughs) The sons of thunder, there they are, the sons of thunder. Be a son of encouragement. And I'm seeing this as I get older, how important encouragement is in the body of Christ. We can have all the zeal in the world and leave a wake of hurting people behind us, can't we? We need to be sons and daughters, church, of encouragement. Let's be like Barnabas in this story. Because it seems that God used the patience and the compassion. What beautiful words, patience and compassion. God used the patience and the compassion of Barnabas to lead Mark to become the man that he was designed to be. Here's what I'm saying. We all make mistakes. We all let people down from time to time. And when we do, don't we hope for grace? I mean, don't we want grace from other people when we make a mistake? When we err, when when we say something we shouldn't say, when we do something we shouldn't do, don't we hope, even at times, expect that people are going to show us grace when we do that? Well, let's also be quick to give it out when people let us down. Life is too short, and the mission that we have been given by Jesus Christ is way too important to allow our relationships with each other to be wrecked by a lack of mercy and forgiveness on our part. Are you hearing me, church? Life is too short, and this mission we have been given is way too important to allow our relationships to be wrecked by our refusal to show mercy and grace to someone else when they have done something to hurt us. So let's be quick to forgive. It's what we see happening here. Barnabas gave Mark grace, and he stuck with him. He stuck with him even when it meant going head-to-head with the Apostle Paul. How many of you know that's probably not an easy task? Paul was a pretty good arguer. Do you, do you know that like law students throughout history stu- have studied the book of Romans, for instance, because of the careful, logical argument that Paul lays out for the gospel in the book of Romans? Paul knew how to argue, and he typically won. He went head-to-head with Peter in Jerusalem, and Peter's like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Paul, you win. <laughs> 
And Paul says because he was clearly in the wrong. Barnabas, though, goes head-to-head right now with the apostle Paul because a young man's future is at stake. He stands up for him, and he encourages him. And because of that, we have the gospel of Mark. Amen? Can I encourage us as a church? Let's never, never give up on people. But let's never give up on our young people. You know, I mean, it's, it's just grow it up. I mean, think about it. How many of us, my hand is up first, were train wrecks as we were growing up? Let me see your hands. If you were a train wreck, okay, let's never. Oh, yeah, the rest of you are perfect. I get it. <laughs> let's never give up on young people. Let's stick with them. We have no idea what God is doing in their lives. We have no idea how their story is going to turn out. When I get big, I want to be like Barnabas. The knowledge that we have concerning the connection between the Apostle Peter and Mark, let's move on to that. What's Mark's relationship to the Apostle Peter comes from one of his letters in church history. Let me just show you one passage here. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Here Peter writes, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, seems that Silvanus was probably his, his scribe, Peter's scribe, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And then he says something very interesting that we might need to unpack one day. She who is at Babylon, Babylon is code for Rome, and I'm not sure who the she is here, but who is likewise chosen... It's a verse that all of those who consider us ourselves to be complementarians at least have to deal with in some way. If you're not up on that issue, I'll leave that alone. Look up the word complementarian, then you can come back and ask me a question. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and look what he says next, and so does Mark, my son. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. So we know two things from this passage about Mark and Peter and their relationship. Mark was with Peter in Rome, first of all, and Peter valued and loved him as a son. They were close. Now, church history, and I'm going to move through this quickly, but church history fills in a lot more detail for us. Uh, Papaya, I'm going to throw some names at you that you may or may not have heard. Our denomination, uh, we don't teach a lot of church history. It's almost like the book of Acts ends, and then we pick it back up again in the 1900s. Well, there were 19 centuries in between that that we should really know about. And Papias, who was an early church father and the bishop of Hierapolis, this would be like second, third generation church at this point. So, like, it's possible that Papias might have even known Mark. And he testified that Mark received his information for his gospel from Peter. Peter, of course, was with Jesus throughout his ministry. And so Peter, we believe, told Mark everything that he had witnessed. Other church leaders from the early years of the church also draw a connection between Peter and Mark. Let me just share a couple examples with you. Irenaeus, again, a name you may or may not know, an early church father, wrote, Mark, the disciple of Peter, transmitted his preaching to us in written form. Clement of Alexandria testified to this connection between Mark and Peter as well. Let me show you this. This, was, this is actually what was written by Papias as far as the relationship between these two men. Mark, who became Peter's interpreter 
actually wrote, though not in order, that's important for us to know, as many of the things said and done by the Lord as he, Peter, had noted. So Mark made no mistake in writing some things just as he recollected them, for he was careful. This should give us great assurance as to the truthfulness of what we are going to study, for he was careful of this one thing, to leave nothing he heard out and to say nothing falsely. Again, written early second century by someone who very likely could have known Mark. Final question for this morning. Why did Mark write? What was his motivation? When did he write? Who was he? And why did he write? Each gospel author had a different audience in mind and a different purpose. Let me walk you through this quickly. This is the gospel author you see there, the audience that he wrote to, and their general purpose for writing. Matthew wrote to the Jews, and his purpose was to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Luke wrote to Greeks in order to convince them that Jesus was the perfect Son of Man who came to save and minister to all people. John wrote to the entire world, and he did that for the purpose that people everywhere would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name. That's a direct quote from chapter 20 of John's Gospel. So what about Mark? Who is Mark writing to? I mean, that's what we really need to know as we take off into this study. Why did Mark write? It's common belief, church, that Mark wrote the gospel while he was in Rome with Peter. He's living with Peter in Rome, and he's writing to the Roman church. And Mark is writing with two dominant goals in mind. And let me walk through these with you. First of all, Mark wants his readers to know Jesus. Mark wants even us today, not just the Romans then, but people today who would read his gospel, he wants them to know Jesus. He wants you and me to meet the main character of the story. And who is the Jesus that Mark is going to introduce to his readers? Well, we will see this in detail in the months to come. But for one, he is the great king. And he has great authority. Authority over what? We will see a Jesus in the coming months, church, who has authority over sickness and blindness and paralysis and even death. We will be introduced in the coming months to a Jesus who has authority over storms and physics and the laws of nature. We will see a Jesus who has authority over wicked creatures in the spiritual realm. Jesus has this authority because he is the Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. However, Jesus is also, and we will see this clearly, he is also the suffering servant of the Lord who willingly endured persecution and torment and death in order to fulfill the mission that his father had called him to fulfill. Mark wants his readers to know about this Jesus, but Mark even more wants his readers to know this Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? And, and, and if you do, wonderful. Let's go on this journey together over the next year, and let's get to know him even better. Amen? Because we never know him enough 
this side of eternity. One day we will know him fully. Until then, we're just getting to know him better until we meet him face to face. But if you have not yet met him, maybe today could be the day when you begin to know him, to enter into relationship with him. Second, Mark wants his readers to follow Jesus. He wants his readers to follow Jesus. Mark writes his gospel during the reign of Emperor Nero. Let me just give you just a bit of history here and we're done. Nero ascended to the throne of the Roman Empire in 54 AD. And he did okay as an emperor for the first several years. But in the early 60s, historians, and and these are not just, I should say this as an apologetic for our faith, these are not just Christian historians that I'm referencing. I'm talking about secular academics who wrote about the Roman Empire. And this is all information, what the information I'm about to give you is all information that could be validated by secular academic historians. But Nero did okay into the 60s, and then he became quite reckless. And for the 30 years prior to that, the church had grown rapidly, and we know this. The church grew rapidly through the empire in spite of sporadic persecution from the Jewish authorities and individual Roman citizens after the resurrection of Christ until this time period we're talking about. We grew as a church, and we continued to grow after this as well. But in AD 64, everything changes when Rome is all but destroyed by a widespread fire. And you maybe have heard about this through your study of history. And the city of Rome was divided up into 14 sections. 80% of that city was destroyed by fire. And as you can imagine, people wanted answers. And the rumors started to spread that the fire had been ordered and caused by Nero, the emperor himself. 80% of the city. Think about the countless lives lost. And people are mad. People are angry. They want answers. The rumors started that Nero started the fire, and so he needed a scapegoat. There was an ancient historian at this time who was writing at this very time period when this happened by the name of Tacitus. Tacitus was not a Christian. As a matter of fact, he was not a fan of Christianity at all. And he was also not a fan of Nero. But he wrote that Nero targeted the Christians in Rome as a scapegoat to blame them for the fire. And so after this, after he made, after Nero made the church his scapegoat, Nero persecuted the early Christians violently. Violent persecutions led by the government broke out at this time. And so our ancestors in our faith, our forefathers and foremothers, were, were torn to pieces by dogs. They were crucified. They were made into human torches that would light up Nero's nighttime garden parties. So why does Mark write this gospel? He writes the gospel of Mark to encourage his brothers and sisters in his own city during this time who are enduring incredible suffering for their faith. Bible scholar William Lane says it this way. He says, Mark's task was the projection of the Christian faith in a context of suffering and martyrdom. If Christians were to be strengthened, 
and the gospel effectively proclaimed, it would be necessary to exhibit the similarity, don't miss this, the similarity of the situation faced by Jesus and the Christians in Rome. The gospel of Mark is a pastoral response to this critical demand. Mark, writing as a pastor in the Roman church, compiles the gospel that we are going to study together to strengthen the churches throughout the city of Rome as they faced this kind of persecution. Jesus made it very clear to us, brothers and sisters, what it means to follow him. Mark chapter 8. I guess I am giving you a few extra verses in Mark today. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Well, this certainly doesn't sound to me like easy believism, does it? It doesn't sound to me like pray a prayer, accept Jesus into your heart type evangelism and then nothing needs to change in your life. What did Christ say? He said, if you would come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. To me, this type of gospel preaching seems to be that when you come to Christ and you trust in him alone for your salvation and you ask him to be the Lord of your life, and you turn from your sin, and you turn to Christ, everything changes. This is complete abandonment to the life that God wants me to lead as opposed to the life that I want to lead. And so Mark writes to a persecuted, suffering church to encourage them in this manner. Let me finished with this quote by Dr. Daniel Aiken, who writes, Mark recorded in rapid-fire succession specific events from the life and ministry of Jesus to prove to a Roman audience that he is the Christ, the Son of God, who served, suffered, died, and rose again. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Worship team, come on up and let's, let's pray. We're going to sing a song to transition into um, time around the Lord's table today. Past, I asked Pastor Ken to lead us in that time of communion this morning. And, and, and please, if you didn't know that and you need to use the, the time of worship as we sing this song um, to get the elements at the back of the room, you know, certainly slip, slip out of your pew and, and go get the, the juice and the, the bread to do that. But let's just pray together before we sing and worship and then come around the Lord's table. Father, we're excited. We're excited to begin this study together in Mark's gospel. Mark's goals in writing were that his readers might know Jesus better and that they might follow Jesus more closely. And so, Lord, we pray that that might be true of us. May it be true of us, Lord, in the coming year that we might be strengthened for your service 
and that the good news would be more effectively proclaimed from this church. And in our own individual lives and in our communities and in our workplaces and among our families and in our neighborhoods, Lord, might our study of the gospel of Mark in this next year equip us for that service so that many in our lives, Lord, would enter into your great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.